Welcome to Stack Stories. It's been a while since you've heard from us, but we're back with what I think is one of the most exciting stories we've done. How does one of the world's largest newspapers push forward into the digital age? Today's episode is brought to you by STRV, the fastest way to build world-class software. STRV is a full-service digital product agency that works with startups like Tinder, Caviar, ClassDojo, and enterprises like LegalZoom, Hallmark, and Lufthansa to help them build and design digital products. Having built over 250 web, iOS, and Android apps, they have more experience working with the latest technologies like React Native than anyone else out there. If you're looking for help with design, web, or mobile development, check them out, strv.com stackshare. You can also check out their standard stacks for verticals like dating apps, on-demand, and IoT on their Stackshare profile, stackshare.io slash strv. For this episode, we sat down with the CTO of the New York Times, Nick Rockwell, to discuss the evolution of their tech stack. In the last few years, Nick has brought the paper from managing their own data centers and using the LAMP stack to a more modern framework using React, GraphQL, and Node, and migrating much of their data onto Google Cloud. And now your host, Jonas Bisharad, founder and CEO of Stackshare. Welcome, everyone. In the studio, we have Nick Rockwell. Yeah. CTO at New York Times. We have... Kane Wren, Head of Engineering at Stackshare. And we have James Cunningham, Ops Lead at Sentry. Yes. Who has a tiny phone. What? I have tiny hands. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't we just go around and introduce ourselves real quick? Okay. Uh, Sure. I'm Nick Rockwell. I'm the CTO at The Times, The New York Times. Spent most of my career in sort of digital media and traditional companies and a couple of startups. I was at Condé Nast for the Times and MTV Networks for a long time and an early internet startup called SonicNet in the mid-90s. Happy to be here. Awesome. So we'll get into your background a little more. Yeah, I am James Cunningham. I work at Sentry. I lead the operations team, making sure everything flows smoothly. Not a lot of other stuff before then. But glad to be sharing the wealth in GCP. I'm Kane. I'm heading up engineering here at Stackshare for us. And met Jonas last summer and joined in October. Previously, I spent some time at Yammer during the hyper growth days prior to and after acquisition. And also spent some time at Yelp leading our API engineering team. And also a bit of time at Salesforce working on a very small project called Do.com. All right. We've got an awesome group today. First, why don't we start, Nick, with just some background and how you ended up at New York Times. I like to think that the Times is like the last job in media that I would have and will have, I think. <laughs> um, I, having spent a lot of my career at MTV and then when Jersey Shore came along feeling like, what am I doing with my life? And then (laughs) (laughs) with a couple of other um, detours ending up at Condé Nast, which was really fun for a while, but eventually felt like I was selling luxury handbags for a living, had an opportunity to come to the times and felt like it was important work and relevant and a brand and a product that I've always cared about since I was a kid growing up in New York. So thought it was super exciting and I've been happy to be there in a, in a fairly crazy couple of years. 
Now, you didn't study literature, right? But what did you study? I did study literature. Oh, literature. Literary theory and literature. Yeah, that was my academic thing. Full circle. Uh, Ish. And actually, it's kind of helpful to have that background just to kind of know how writers and journalists think. And I have a lot of friends in the newsroom from, you know, back in my college days and so on. So it's, it's not, it doesn't not help, but on the other hand, I focus on engineering now. So. <laughs> All right. Very cool. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about how you think about technology at New York Times. You know, obviously there's, there's a lot of talk about print going away. Digital is the future. Your CEO just said actually just the other day, two days ago, that print has approximately 10 more years and obviously, he's, he's not just talking about New York Times, but he's talking about the broader industry. How do you guys look at digital and how do you sort of set that vision? So for starters, it's important to realize that we're now at least 20 years, if not more, into our digital journey. I have six layers of digital legacy at this point. We number our kind of New York Times frameworks and we're on to six now. There's still bits of three lying around. I think one and two are pretty much gone. But So it's been a long, long journey already. And I'm someone who spent, you know, I've become old as, old as hell now. And I've spent my whole career in digital media. So, so it's not like a new thing anymore. But that said, I think the difference is that we're at an inflection point where we can see how the Times really works as a fully digital business. Like we, we can see a path to print disappearing and us being able to sustain, you know, the newsroom and keep doing what we do. Um, that hasn't been true until very recently, I think. But that said, I don't, we don't, the you know, Mark said what he said. We have no idea how long print will last. And the, and the truth is, as long as people want it and as long as there's enough scale that we can operate our printing facility like profitably, we'll keep doing it. I personally think they'll probably continue indefinitely in some form or another. It may be very different. We're, and we're actually working all the time to figure out what's special about print and what we can do in print that feels impactful and meaningful and new and differentiated from digital. It's not just about like getting the news to people because it's obviously a much like less effective way to do that. But we do things like shipping the Google Cardboard out to everyone as part of our VR strategy and being able to put wow. that in blue bags and put it on 2 million people's doorsteps is something special. Oh, wow. um, we do things like we did a kid's supplement on the last Sunday Times that I think was kind of fun, special for kids and just a different experience. We got to teach them about newspaper. <laughs> so, awesome. um, so I think we'll, you know, we just try to be flexible and we'll see at this point our infrastructure and our like core workflow for creating the news is completely integrated. So it's not a source of friction anymore. It's just kind of another output. So do you think that the way you all think about technology is different from maybe some of the other publications or from the rest of the industry? How do you sort of set that vision and, and how do you get everyone rallied behind this idea that, look, the digital side of things is really important? Or is that just like naturally happening throughout the organization? Yeah, we're there. We're there. I think we're still learning somewhat frustratingly. I think we're still learning particularly how to do product development well. But I think the whole organization has accepted that, you know, we're digital first at this point, And that's quite helpful. Mm-hmm. How do we think about technology? I'd say, I'd say we think about technology, and the Washington Post talks about it a lot. So. Mm. <laughs> Shots fired. <laughs> <Okay. Yeah. laughs> but I think, I mean, 
what I mean by that is like we really I'm a real believer in really yoking the technology strategy to the product strategy to the company strategy and not mm. doing things for their own sake or doing more than we need to do. A lot of the problems in media are actually very simple problems. One of the first things I did when I came into the Times was implement Fastly as a proper CDN across everything. Uh, and I, I was shocked and appalled because I'd done that it hadn't been done. So I did it 20 years ago for the first time when I was at MTV. And like that, but that takes away so many of the headaches of a media company. So much is just about kind of one way distribution and caching is such an effective tool. So like simple things, simple solutions, you know, to our problems are, are something that we try to remain focused on and not make things harder than they need to be. Yeah, and in some ways, that was an interesting choice for New York Times to bring you in because, I mean, I don't have the stats on this, but I think what usually happens is you don't have hardcore technologists that are put into some of these roles. And so some of these decisions, right, like, okay, CDN, day one, are natural to technologists. But then when you bring it into a, an org that hasn't typically thought that way, mm-hmm. it's a new idea, right? So I think that the Times picked me for one set of reasons and then mm. they got something a little different than they expected. Okay. <laughs> Not as advertised. I think to some degree they saw like that my time at Condé Nast and thought, oh, here's someone who like understands the publishing world. And, you know, and I did have that experience, but I, it's not where I feel like I came from or I, mean, I really trace my formative years back to the startup years in the nineties and the very beginning of the web when I had to do things like write my own ad server and like my own application server and like crazy things that like nobody would ever do anymore. But, and I don't necessarily even think of myself as a hardcore technologist, certainly not by West coast standards, but nonetheless I do I, what I care about and I'm passionate about is actually technology and architecture and solving problems. Not so much whether I'm in the publishing industry or the something else. So I, I think, I hope they think they're lucky because they picked me for one reason and they got something else. And it's been fun for me to go in and, frankly, just do a lot of cleanup. Like I said, we have layers and layers. Like one of the biggest technical problems is the legacy. And I talk about the digital legacy now, which is quite old and multi-layered. I haven't even talked about the print technology legacy, which is truly frightening. I mean, we shut a mainframe down uh, at the end of last year and stuff like that. So, wow. so I happen to like to clean things up. So it's been fun and satisfying, but it probably has been a little more changed than folks were prepared for. <laughs> gotcha. Well, so would you define a lot of your role as kind of bringing New York Times into this era as far as computing, as far as tooling. Is that a large part of what you're doing? I think so, yeah. I think I put it slightly differently. I would say to me it's about bringing discipline to the way that we do technology and product development. I think it's all this stuff is sort of easy to start doing and hard to do well and to follow through on and to do the hard parts of so I'd say like most of these older companies and frankly, a lot of newer ones at the times have one foot in the future and like three feet in the past. I guess that's a four-legged creature <laughs> or maybe, I don't know. Anyway, you know, and I think it's about getting, pulling the rest of the company and the infrastructure and our practices along so that it's all feels more modern and we can have a good sort of solid place to really focus on doing the product development, which is what matters. Gotcha. So would you say that in some ways New York Times is now a technology company, right? And will be in 10 years, we'll be saying that it's another technology company. 
Would you, is that how you see New York Times now? I, I don't. I, I mean, that's a, that's a gesture that some of us like to make and a way that we like to talk. I don't really see it that way. And the Times mm-hmm. very clearly will always be about journalism, right? I mean, that's, okay. that's where the value comes from. That's what we do. That said, every company is a technology company or has a technology company like tucked within it. And even that's not really giving enough due to the complexity. Like we're, what's a technology company? We're a software development company. We're also like a manufacturing and distribution company because we still do roll trucks. and Logistics, yeah. Logistics, we actually, and and we're now, like everyone, we're a machine learning company. Like we need to be applying machine learning. So there's there's kind of a never ending list of sort of new kinds of a company that we need to become in part at least um, never ending this so but nonetheless at the core will always be the journalism which is I think like it's a fundamentally creative undertaking that can be directly supported in some important ways by technology but ultimately it comes down to like good storytelling good investigative journalism and that's human work yeah Absolutely. And I mean, personally, New York Times is one of the only publications I read regularly. But Are you a subscriber? I am a subscriber, oh, yes. Thank yes. you. Yes, <laughs> I am. And, and that, that's recent, not just because of you. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, it's because now quality is part of what everyone's seeking, right? Because yeah. there's so much information out there. It's all, it's all about, hey, how do we get to the quality? Yeah. Which brings me to the next point here. How do you view this whole argument about fake news, right? I know you've mm-hmm. suggested previously something like HTTPV, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but so what are your thoughts on this concept of fake news and how it impacts your day-to-day as well? It doesn't, it doesn't. It's, it's a problem that we're concerned about as obviously a participant in the news world and ecosystem. It's also an interesting story that we covered as a newspaper. You know, we think that in, in the impact and impact on politics and so on. At the same time, I think I think it's complicated and I think it's it's a little overstated. It's overstated as a novelty. I mean, there's always been fake news. There's actually a really interesting, oh, I can't remember what I was looking at, but there was a whole piece published. Oh, it was on, it was on oh, I can't remember. Anyway, but there was a whole piece published in like 1905 or so in the sun in New York about like scientists have figured out how to get to the moon and they've discovered life. And they let it run for like two weeks before issuing a retraction. <laughs> like, so there's been crazy stuff going on in the, in the newspaper world forever. That said, everything is amplified, you know, like by a hundred thousand times in the you know, connected world that we're in now. So the impact can be greater or so it seems, I think that's actually debatable. But nonetheless, I think it's, it is a problem. It's not something to be ignored. I mean, the way that these things are kept in balance is by, you know, occasionally sort of society becoming outraged about how degenerate things have become and pushing back. I don't think it's the Times' problem to solve. Mm-hmm. Um, we solve it by not doing fake news, by actually checking sources and being very rigorous. By the way, like I, I can say from coming into the Times now two years ago, that we really do take our mission to be as objective as possible seriously. Now, that's opinion aside. But for the core news reporting, we really do try to be objective. But as far as like solving the fake news problem across the internet, that's like not a problem that we can solve. Yeah. I think it's an interesting problem for the platforms to engage on. And I think ideas actually about like building some kind of sense of verification into the fabric of the internet, almost like at the protocolish level is an interesting idea um, mm. that would be super hard to execute, but 
not a bad way to be thinking about it. Yeah, because then you get into the whole, well, who is approving the new, yeah. the new you know, exactly. entrance into this, like... So, so the more decentralized and kind of emergent it can be, yeah. you almost think of, like, PageRank and, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of was accomplishing in some ways the same goal, but, like, what's the sort of consensus of the web as to what sources can be trusted and what can't be? Obviously, that's tricky, but I think that's not a bad approach or a way to think about it anyway. Yeah, and this sort of relates back to product development because now I think from a consumer's perspective, you know, I'm just talking from my end, is that I think what I see is that publishers are now starting to build more of these product aspects into their own platforms, right? Mm -hmm. So you mentioned product development. Can you talk a little bit about how you guys are building, how how you're looking at product development, how you're looking at building things into your apps that ultimately they sort of, you know, remove the need for you to go to a Facebook or an external source to like see all the news that you need to see. So can you talk a little bit about how you view that versus like distribution channels? Sure. So, I mean, like we, first of all, we, you know, greatly value our platform partners. We view Facebook, Google, Apple, all of them as critical partners. And we, you know, we couldn't have the business that we have without them. They're a source of acquisition, you know, and a, both as a paid channel and obviously a great way to get our content out there, get our brand out there, et cetera. So at the same time, we've made a decision that our destination and our own products are the best place that we can showcase our journalism and with a place where we can provide the most value for our users and also sustain our business. So, so we're committed to the times as a destination. And again, like not for everybody. Like we, re- our reach is, is enormous. We reach 150 million monthly uniques on our own platforms, probably double or triple that if you include the platform footprint, the social footprint. Let's say, but you know, I, I, when we talk about our subscriber base, that's a much much smaller number, and those are the people that we really want to offer like our, the best experience possible to. So, given that, what we want to do is we want to showcase the journalism and surface the right journalism for each person, and again, also be very careful to say that we we believe in our mission as a curator as well. So we care, like the homepage of the Times is a thing and people value us saying like, here's the news that you need to know. At the same time, we publish 250 to 300 pieces of content a day. Nobody can read it all. And supplementing the curated view with something that's a little more about like, here's the stuff we think you're interested in or that you might enjoy or get a kick out of discover, driving discovery as well as for a variety of reasons, things we might be interested in, things that might be more serendipitous. But we think that's a core mission for the product as well. So that's, that's kind of what we're focused on right now. Gotcha. Yeah, in some ways that's improving upon this, the idea of a newspaper, right? It's like if you can sort of tailor, it's a balance, right? Because that's, yeah. I forget the quote, but someone was saying like, newspapers were great because when everyone was using reading the newspaper, everyone knew all the news, right? Yeah. And now it, was, it, was, it, it helped can, to build sort of a consensus, like exactly. a shared reality, a shared reality, society, exactly. which I think is a really important part of our mission. Yeah. Exactly, because now everything's personalized. So how do you strike a balance between personalization and then just core news that you all feel like is important for everyone to know? Yeah, and that and that's the answer is that we're committed to curating the news. We're committed to having a point of view and telling people we think they need to know. And then we think we can supplement that with a more like playful approach to also surfacing other content to people. And I like to think, in some ways, I, I think in terms of recreating some of the serendipity that was evident in the physical product. And I, I think 
I have like sort of a cheesy image in my mind of like picking up the paper and coming in and like tossing it on the table and like the section spilled out and you're like, oh, what's that article? You know, mm. <laughs> and you might never have gone to like the style section to read about, you know, mm. this reality show or something. But then you're like, oh my God, this is insane, you know, and you, and you enjoy it. So creating some of that spontaneity and almost randomness. I also, you know, I'm a big user of the Discover Weekly playlist on Spotify and I yeah. uh, talk to some of the people behind that. And again, it's, it's not, they don't approach it just as their framing was never just to like give people more music, like what they've listened to. It's been to understand people's tastes and then give them new music. So it's been always, always was about discovery. And we take that approach as well. Like we want to think about how to actually open doors for people, expose them to things they might not have seen, but that we think that they'll get a kick out of. So from a product perspective, do you have like a mandate on your homepage? It's like, oh, like 95% has to be curated and then we'll give 5% to discovery. Do you have any it's, sort of mandate like that? It's not that rigid. And I think okay. we really like the homepage belongs to the newsroom and, and they're, they're experimenting with different ways to take pieces of it and make them a little more personal. But I, more, I think in terms of like, how do we supplement that experience and that can be, it could be through totally different means. It could be through email. It could be through, you know, a second feed. There are lots of push you know, notifications, push notifications as yep. well, where we, we haven't done a lot of like targeting of push notifications, but that's something that we will be focusing more on as well. Okay. So it's a, it's a balance, but I think those things absolutely can live side by side on um, different parts of the experience. Awesome. All right. On to the tech stack. So you joined New York Times. When? A little over two years ago, November years. of 2015. Okay. So when you entered about two years ago, what did the tech stack look like? So we can mostly, start with maybe back end and then work our way. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, overall, the stack was a pretty typical uh, LAMP stack. It was mostly PHP on the front end, MySQL with some Java services mixed in. And then a little bit of everything. Like we'd sort of been in a period where with the best intentions, we'd sort of tried to let every, you know, a million flowers bloom and let every team sort of do what they wanted. So there was a bunch of Go, there was one team that was using Scala for a key project, and then a whole bunch of stuff related to our analytics stack. We had a dupe in there and a whole and we're using a little bit of Redshift and you know a lot of the Amazon infrastructure. There was, there was a whole data pipeline that involved Dynamo and SQS and other things. We had a little bit of everything going on. Uh, Infrastructure-wise, we have four data centers of our own, plus an AWS a virtual data center, and then a bunch of other stuff just scattered around throughout AWS. So we're kind of all over the place as well. Gotcha. Okay. So when you first came on board, was it easy for you to just understand all of that, or how were you getting ramped up? No, it was super difficult. And one of the sort of telling things was when you asked, like, for a description of a particular system's architecture, you would get a story, you know? <laughs> New York Times story. <laughs> you get a long story. It's like, well, you know, when we started, like, and then there we go. Yeah. So, like, that I thought was quite telling. But even more, I would say, it was difficult to sort of get, you know, to even just understand everything. But then if you step back and, like, looked at the big picture, it was not comprehensible. It didn't say anything. Okay. And I've been thinking a lot about the idea that an architecture should, like, say something. You know, it should be it should be opinionated and should say something about how you think about development or what you think is important or not. As I was trying to like onboard and understand things, I was thinking about the experience of like a developer coming in and having that same feeling of like, I don't understand why anything is the way it is. 
So I have no guardrails or no guidance as to how I should make decisions and think about things because there's like no opinion here, basically. Mm-hmm. So one of my goals was that over time, the architecture would become more philosophical, like it would say something more like intelligible. And so that's one of the things we've kept in mind as a guidepost as we've gone about re-architecting things. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. How many different teams are there involved in the technology side? So we talk about the product engineering versus like the corporate IT stuff. Right. It's, you know, we're, we're thinking in terms of like development teams Depending, you can slice it slightly different ways. Yeah. Mostly we're organized by, you know, product and platform, and then product is split into not that many, but a handful of products, basically like the core site, the, right. the native apps, the cooking, crosswords, and so on. That's right. But then that core team is pretty big, so that splits up into four or five different teams. And gotcha. on the platform side, we're divided up into teams with different areas of responsibility. So altogether, it's probably about... 2022. Okay. 22 orgs. 22 teams, like yeah. you know, yeah. teams of teams. like right. kind of six to 10 to 12 people, maybe a little more across disciplines, you include product and design. So, like, yeah. typical sort of two pizza ish teams. Our teams are a little on the small side. Um, actually, we probably have quite a few that are like two or three developers, which is something that we're kind of scratching our heads and deciding if that's a good thing or a bad thing. So I'm bad at math. Is that 200 to 300 people across two, two, product and platform? Probably 200-ish. Okay. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I'm thinking about that. No, probably two. If you're talking engineers, it's probably a bit under 200. If we gotcha. include like product design, project management, QA, and so on, it's like 250 to 270 probably. Okay. okay. And that includes DevOps. Yeah. Yeah. DevOps okay. inclusive as well. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. That was, that was an interesting... It's always an interesting question because it gets to the heart of how you also think about building things, right? Yeah. So product and engineering makes sense. Do you also then, are the teams cross-functional? You don't have like back-end, front-end? Yeah, so this is an interesting debate that we continue to have. So mm-hmm. I have a firm yes to that answer if we define cross-functional as product design, engineering, data, testing, it's a, like a, those kinds of functions. Mm-hmm. Within engineering, if we talk about like front end, back end, and so on, my answer to the team is absolutely like every team should staff the skills that they feel that they need to, and nobody has a monopoly on front end or back end work. Mm-hmm. In practice, we're still like the product teams are more front end focused and the platform teams are more back end focused. And the, right. some of that is natural, yeah. but some yeah. of it is also inertia and some of it is sort of misreading. Continuing, I would say, like, like collective misunderstanding of what we're doing. Right. So we still sort of interpret product and platform as front end and back end, but that's not the way that it should be. There are yeah. things we do that really are platform that have a UI. A good example would be customer care, which is going right. to be surfaced in a whole bunch of different products. And we really want it to be consistent, you know, and at the same time, there's things that we do in the product that require a back end, but that what they need from the back end doesn't really rise to the level of platform. It's not particularly reusable it would be the main like test. So there's no reason why they shouldn't have backend engineers and build their own backend. So like, well, I think we're still like evolving our way through that a little bit, trying to get to the right place. Gotcha. And when you're dipping different teams into the same functional code base, right, into the same backend, how do those teams maintain their standards in those shared code bases? If you have someone on the product team dipping into what some might believe is platform land, How do they go about that? How do they request change? So we mostly don't do that, meaning we mostly don't share code bases. So 
we try to be discriminating about what we call platform. And at the end of the day, if something's part of the platform, it's a service that's got an API. And the contract then is, is really, okay, there's a team, they've got a roadmap for this service. And if you're on the front end and you, you know, they need to do their own, first of all, like market discovery, they need to understand what their client teams need. And if you're a client team, yeah, you got to tell them what you want. And then they manage that through the roadmap. Now, there are a few places where that's not been fast enough. So one a good example would be like our core primary API for content is a GraphQL server implementation now. And that's been a place where like the rate of change to the schema is makes it awkward and painful at times to have that all be funneled through one team. There's another reason why it's a little sticky for us too. So that's a place where we've tried to open up so that anyone can like work on parts of that code base, specifically the like resolvers and GraphQL, like people can write their own and effectively extend the schema. We're still trying to figure out the right way to make that manageable. I think we're getting there. Like it feels okay now, but it opens up a whole bunch of cans of worms. Like who do we hold accountable for the reliability of those things? And and then we're also asking teams to like reskill a fair amount for historical reasons. Our GraphQL implementation is in Scala using the Sangria framework which is not the technology of choice for most front-end developers, let's say. <laughs> so right. they're like, why can't we just use Node? And the answer is, well, it's a long story. <laughs> um, but, I have uh, a story for you. Yeah, I got a story for you. I don't have a story. So, but that's where we are today. So, Yeah, I mean, I was about to ask, so what if well, front-end currently is what? Is it just homegrown? Well, it was like a, P, a homegrown PHP framework, and now oh. it's React-based. So okay. we're, I was gonna, we're quite heavy on React, Apollo, the Apollo client. Okay, I was going to say, well, what happens if someone wants to, you know, they're making a case that everything should go to like Vue.js. What mm-hmm. team would that roll up to? A platform? Because it's cross-product? So that, yeah, that's a good question, too. And the answer is, we've ended up in a place where we don't really think, that's not what we mean by platform in the first case. Okay. What we really mean is like services that multiple development teams, products really are going to rely on. That's our primary definition. When we get to like frameworks that we just kind of want to use consistently across things, there's kind of a little like platform team in the news, core news team (laughs) who like kind of makes those decisions. And they, like, for example, they did the work to like do the due diligence on React and say like, hey, we should all go in this direction, implemented it. It's kind of like where the core product goes, everyone everyone else follows because that's such a, they're the ones who really have the resources to like investigate things well. Okay. But the most important part of that process is that, and this is one of the first things that I did when I came in was to think about how we made technology decisions. Before we started making a whole lot of them, I wanted to think a little about how we were making them. Yeah. And we ended up setting up a thing, which I, every time I, like, I literally can't say the words without feeling slightly nauseous, but it's an architecture review board. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> um, but, but we thought a lot about, yeah, so we thought a lot about what that we wanted that to be and how to not have it suck. And I don't know if we've gotten it perfect, but what we said was basically, okay, this is a group of developers who are drawn from all of the teams and they're still working on the teams. They're not, this isn't, isn't all they do. It's like a, sort of 30 to 40% time commitment. Right. Um, mm-hmm. What they do is, first of all, they consult with any team that's trying to make a decision and they, they try to look across everything. So they kind of try to know what's happening. Then they consult and then we have an RFC process. So if you're going to do something significant, you're expected to write up an RFC describing what you think you're going to do. Right. Um, hopefully that's already been after some consultation, but then you write it down right. and you share it and actually the entire engineering organization can comment on it. 
but the ARB is a bunch of smart people who have like promised to comment on it. Like they all have to read it and they have to comment on it. Right. They can bring other people in explicitly who they think will bring a good perspective or anyone can just jump in. Yeah. But then we have an open period of a couple of weeks where comments are open and then they close it. And out of that, they write a, a response. And that response, it should include some prescriptive statements like do this. And then it may include many you know, suggestions. But we're very clear about what's prescriptive and what's suggested. And we're very clear that if they prescribe something, you really should do it. You can still appeal it, but like really you should do it. <laughs> oh, there's an appeals process. There's always an appeals process. Okay. Like it's bullshit to pretend that there isn't. You know, and like people will come to me and like, I was about to say, does like that involve having <laughs> coffee with Nick? <laughs> yeah. it, it doesn't, but I'm pretty good at just saying, like, I don't know. Like, yeah. why do you think I know better than these guys? Like, right. go talk, talk to them. So that almost never happens, but. It's been tough, actually. The toughest part has been getting the ARB team to, like, really make prescriptive statements because everyone's nice and inclusive and we all want to, like, be flexible and not have it become super bureaucratic. But once in a right. while, like, I always, I'm always telling them, like, once in a while they have to put their foot down um, right. so that we can have a coherent kind of architecture. We don't waste a lot of time. Yeah. So, obviously, there's been probably at least one of those where the result has been some sort of disagreement. Oh, yeah. Big time. Yeah. How, <laughs> how do your teams go around generating support for the majorities saying, this is the decision we've made, this is what we're going to stick with, and I need you to support me as a decision maker? Is there any sort of friction in that process? How do the naysayers become a, eh, I agree? I mean, I, I think there's no shortcut to getting there. And I've tried to, usually when there's a shortcut, that's a sign that something's wrong. It'll either mean a team feels like they can just ignore feedback from the rest of the team and go do what they want and like they won't get in trouble or, you know, or they'll try to like have their cake and eat it too in some funny way. So I think when we've had real conflict, we've like settled down to like slog through it until we really got to a conclusion. And that's required a lot of patience on the part of, I would say, like my senior management mm -hmm. who are getting a lot of pressure to move ahead. But if we're not ready to move ahead with the plan, we won't move ahead with it. We'll like stay in that like uncomfortable space where we disagree until we feel like we can really come out of it. And we that happened very significantly around our GraphQL implementation. Actually, that was one of the hardest things that we had to do. And it took like all of the summer basically to arrive at a reasonable consensus. And it's still not everyone is in complete agreement to this day, I think. But I think we found a way to make it work and move it forward and go past it. So right. I think it's like unfortunately like doing the hard work of like plowing through the conflict and not and then a senior manager like not letting us, despite everyone's desire to like move forward, like keeping us there until we really feel like we've gotten to the bottom of it. Totally. That's the hard part. Awesome. So maybe we can just circle back briefly to what the technology stack looked like when you got mm -hmm. to New York Times. So LAMP stack, you had some stuff on AWS. Was that the bulk of it? Were there other providers in different places? And was that sort of scattered as well? It was mostly, well, we had our data own data centers, center, so yeah. a whole lot running on like VMware virtualization and our own data. So it was both the bulk of our stuff. And then like 75%. Probably you know, 60 to 70%. And then a bunch running in AWS. So that was, those were the, you know, that was the infrastructure. Okay. And then, I mean, there was a whole analytics stack. There was a whole MarTech and like subscription management stack that was pretty separate from the core product. We also had the, the, the newer products that we used at that time called Beta, which is the cooking and the crosswords products, which were also like basically completely different, which I didn't mind too much. But which so was more in a lamp stack for those products? I think 
in the case of cooking, for example, it was, but it was a different lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Like different set of BHP frameworks, et cetera, gotcha. et cetera. Mongo had found its way into like a place in the core publishing pipeline for some pathways, but not others. And so, so it was just pretty complicated. Okay. But the core site was PHP. Core site was PHP, yeah. Was there a framework being used in the front end? I think it was our own. My understanding is it's our own framework. And framework, I think, is a little bit of the wrong word for it. It was kind of like a way of doing things and sort of a visual, almost more like a design framework than a real like implementation framework. Okay. But so I, actually, I didn't study it too closely because I was just like, okay, this is what we're not going to do anymore. Right. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. And, and was that part of the impetus for creating ARB? Was it um, saying, like, partly, yeah. It was like how, like, basically, I came in and there was already like broad dissatisfaction with that land stack and the and the front end framework in particular. So I wasn't okay. I wasn't passing judgment on. It. I mean, you, you lamp's fine. You can do good work in lamp's. A little dated at this point, but it's not. I didn't want to rip it out for its own sake. But everyone else was like, we don't like this. It's really inflexible. Like, so I, and I remembered okay. from being outside the company when what well, that was called MIT five when it had launched and be observing it from the outside. And I was like, you guys, you took so long to do that and you, you did it so carefully and yet you're not happy with your decisions. Like, why is that? And that was more of the impetus. Okay. Up the bar. It was like, how are, if we're going to do this again, how are we going to do it in a way that we're going to get a better result? So. Gotcha. And so can you talk a little bit about the major pieces of your tech stack today? Back end, is it still largely, I mean, of course, PHP, but are you slowly moving away from that? No, it's quite it's quite different. We're moving quickly away from it, I would say. Oh. So right now, the new front end is React-based and using using Apollo. And we've been in, in a long, protracted, like gradual rollout of the core experiences, but we're live on that stack for all of the core experiences right now at different levels of distribution. Okay, um, so fully React. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so some of, some of the old stuff is still ser- like serving pages, particularly the homepage. We've been very cautious and like we kind of have the old, we, we changed the design when we changed the underlying implementation at the same time. So right. we've been testing into the new design on the new stack and like gradually increasing the distribution. The story page is like the other big experience in that we're 100% on mobile on the new stack. And I forget on desktop, we're very, very close. We might already be at 100%. We're very, very close to it. We will be within the next few weeks, I believe. So we're pretty far along. Over the next month and a half, we should complete the migration for those core experiences. Right, but you were just talking about front-end React. Yeah, so far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So so now so So React, now talking to GraphQL as a primary API. Ah, okay. Um, There's a node back-end to the front-end, which is mainly for server-side rendering as well. So that's a piece. And then behind there... The main repository for the GraphQL server is a big table repository that we call Bodega because it's a convenience store <laughs> um, where we and, and that reads off of a Kafka pipeline, which is where we're publishing our content to and uh, like keeps a canonical version of, or not canonical, but like a composed version of each piece of content like handy. Uh, right. We could consider a convenience store rather than a, you know, than a canonical store because we're really using the inverted log paradigm and we'll read back off the log we want to recreate a canonical store and then so mysql is still your your persistent data not no actually kafka is like kafka is our is our system of record and then we have this big table based convenience store which is like the production system that you can go to when you don't you know you don't want to recreate things you just want to like get the state of something behind that there mysql still the back end is scoop which is our newsroom cms 
our content management mm-hmm. system. Okay. So there's still it's the really creation. like a working store, and then you know when a piece of content is published, it goes on the, you know, under the Kafka pipeline, and off it goes. So, so, so creation still happens in the old system. CMS, MySQL backed. Yeah, although we've we've and done a lot creating. to evolve that system at the same time. I mean that okay. that thing was all like a big struts hibernate beast. Mm-hmm. And there's still a little bit of that in there, but we chipped away at a lot of it. There's still some work to be done. And but, the migration path for more of the back end storage side, did it follow a similar path as as the front end? Did the core team also lead that effort or was this more. Um, it was a different team. It was a, it was part of the platform team, right. and and that involved yeah. We basically went, once we wired things up to be dumping published content onto into Kafka, we could gradually move clients over to read either directly from Kafka or out of the or, or come through the GraphQL server yeah. to get stuff. And that process is mostly complete. So mostly we're reading off of the new pipeline, uh, right. not the old one. And this entire migration process, how long did it roughly take? Because we're basically talking about 150 million MAUs and this yeah. process. We would look, we've, we've taken our time and a lot of it has been, the forcing function has been uh, the, our data center leases being up. Gotcha. So the first one was up <laughs> right. at the beginning of this year. We Makes successfully sense. got out of there. Yeah. The next are over the next few months. And then by end of April or May, I think, we'll be out of the last one and we'll be done. Right. But that was the forcing function. Everything else, like we could take our time but old systems were either going to have to be migrated or shut down. So overall, I'd say the whole process we were about two years into. Right. But the stuff I was just describing, we didn't really get started on. It's more like 15 months or so. Right. Um, the first thing we did was our data and analytics pipeline. And that was a place for us to prove a lot of like basic ideas out Yeah. Um, before we turned it up to everything else. Can you talk about data and analytics in terms sure. of how you, how you collect it and then... So process and analyze. We really drank the Google Kool-Aid on analytics. So Mm. we're almost all, everything's going into BigQuery. Almost everything is going straight into PubSub and then doing some processing and data flow before ending up in BigQuery. We had, and we still use, actually it's frustrating to me. (laughs) We still do too much sort of processing and augmentation on the front end before it goes into PubSub. And that's using the kind of some stuff we pulled together using Dynamo and so on. And it's very brittle, actually. Mm. Um, actually, Dynamo throttling is one of our biggest headaches. So I want all of that to go away and do all of our augmentation in BigQuery after the data has been collected and having things just go straight into PubSub. So we're working on that. That'll happen sometime. <laughs> so before we dive more into the stack, can you just describe for the listeners what happens when someone loads a page an article in New York Times right now, just like front to back. Yeah, I'll do this fairly crudely because the process has become pretty complicated. Mm. Um, <laughs> I understand. Yeah, but I think I have it in my head. Bro. <laughs> you're going to describe it way better. Well, I don't know. I mean, so like, so above the fold for the page gets rendered in Node. So first, I mean, the query gets resolved. The initial like page template gets rendered in node and pushed out. And then like, you know, then we make a bunch of other like secondary requests and start to pull content into it, which will all go through GraphQL, that's a particular piece of content or set of content or list of articles or whatever, or whatever. And it all gets composed. And then we fire off a million tags, <laughs> you know, either events that we're collecting through PubSub or third party tags for a million other reasons. And I don't know, that's pretty much it. 
So GraphQL node and then React. Yeah. Right. Okay. So once that loads on the page, then let's say something dynamic happens, like you have the ability to bookmark something, right? In the apps, you can bookmark. I think probably okay. on the web too. I don't, I don't do it. So I'm not quite sure about something. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You can save stuff for later. Yeah. Okay. So that would all be just happening yeah. through GraphQL. I'm not certain that the save events go through GraphQL on their way to the back end. I don't, I'm not okay. sure. We definitely try to read through GraphQL. We don't yeah. always write through GraphQL. Okay. Different events take different paths. So they're asynchronous or synchronous paths for the most part. So, but I can't recall off the top of my head how where the save events go. Okay. So homepage, similar flow? Yeah, pretty much. Very cool. So you basically went from that looking like PHP loading up plain old HTML JavaScript to now fully node React. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and like web architecture like doesn't fundamentally change like ever, same as it was in 1995. Basically. <laughs> but the difference, like the biggest difference, would actually be that server side rendering in Node. Like that's a mm. thing that isomorphic stuff is like something that we couldn't really do so well, like in a sophisticated way in the past. Yeah. Um, now we can do it in a fairly sophisticated way. Is it worth it or not? Like, I'm not, I'm not always <laughs> completely sure, but I think we've gotten significant performance gains. You know, trying to balance the performance gains of doing things server side versus, you know, the sort of development ease of composing things on the client side. So I think it's good to have all of those like options. Can you walk us through the decision to adopt React? What did that look like? Is that your idea? Um, so I was a fan of React, and, and we had adopted it at Condé Nast prior, but it was mm -hmm. it was not my. I didn't push it uh, at all, but we ended up in the same place. So I couldn't really walk you through the thought process in detail because the team found their own way there, and I was like, "Sounds good," you know. Yeah. <laughs> I okay. didn't challenge them too much on it. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't because it seemed like it made sense to me, so I didn't challenge and go deep on it. Right. But I think you know the feeling was of the sort of. The 3.0 like front end frameworks that React was the one that people were excited about. Now I sense, and I haven't gone deep on it. Maybe you guys know more than I do. You probably do for sure. But like that, there's a little bit of a, another wave of front end frameworks that are lighter weight. That's sort of a lighter weight approach than React. That some people there's one in particular that I keep hearing about lately. Preact, not Preact. That's kind of interesting. <laughs> Vue.js. Uh, it might be, might be Vue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. And I think that, you know, I, I'm like deeply suspicious of all front-end frameworks. <laughs> <laughs> Disclaimer, yeah. I just, you know, it's just like, it never seems like things actually get that much easier. That you really see easier, the productivity yeah. gains that theoretically are, are the reason you're doing these things. That's it, you got to do something. So, yeah. um, and definitely like the solution is not to stay like stuck in the past. And, so developer happy. I just don't. I don't. I, I try not to get overexcited when people are like, "Once we do React, it's going to be great." You know, I'm yeah. like, "Hey, it'll still be web development." <laughs> so that went through ARB. Yeah. Okay. And then you mentioned that Apollo. Well, GraphQL was mm -hmm. a particularly difficult choice, and it's still in progress. Can you talk a little bit about that and the thinking behind adopting it? Well, the, the choice of GraphQL wasn't super controversial. What was more controversial was how we were going to implement and then who right. was going to own it, basically. Mm. And, you know, was it the front, did the front end team own it or did we look at this platform and have a different team own it than people were building the front end? That's the way that we went. And it was partly for expediency, like we had a great team in place that had been building a very similar product. And they just kind of took what they've been doing and like, like, 
basically made at GraphQL. So and at the heart of the matter was exactly what you know you were talking about, about like how the places where the most work happens, like how to create the most service area so most people can like do their own work there. And it all comes down to the schema and schema transformations and basically query resolution. So, and that's the hard part always in these kind of multi-tier architectures is when you change the schema, how do you minimize the pain of having effect, you know, change the schema in many places that simultaneously change APIs, change, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that's like the hard problem. And what we sweated a lot over was like sort of how schema changes would work, who was responsible for them, what the workflow would be, and also like how much we would try to like automate it so that you would make a change in one place and have it flow everywhere versus, you know, not try to create an incredibly complicated contraption and just like deal with changing things in a few places at the same time. So like that's been the hard part of it. And then the choice again to implement Scala was unpopular with many people. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, has been great in some respects. Like we had a great team who, who that's how they, you know, they wanted to work and they've done great work and it's been rock solid. So, you know, that's the, on the plus side and not everybody loves Node. Yeah. I mean, touching on your, the sprinkling of anima- animation, automation, did you ever find, or do you have maybe a classic example in your head where, something was over-automated and it outreached its bounds. And something that was once a convenient tool has now become a hungry beast that people have to look out for. I think that happens a lot. I'd have to think carefully about like what the best example is, but I think that's a common pattern. You certainly see it a lot in, in testing, or like the, the graveyard of test automation frameworks. <laughs> it's like a terrible, scary place. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it happens a lot in DevOps too, where it's easy to overtool. But we certainly ran the risk, I think, of going down that path for how we were managing schema changes. And we pulled back from automating everything. And time will tell whether that was really the right call. But it feels like we were we were heading potentially towards making well, the problem with that kind of automation is it becomes very brittle. And then lots of things depend on on this one thing behaving a certain way. So it's, then it's hard to change lots of things. Maybe keep a little more like give between parts of the system. Sometimes it works out better. Of course. So going along with coming back to GraphQL, how does Apollo play into this? And how do you manage things like, okay, someone wants to implement a schema change on the GraphQL side. What does that look like now? So right, like now it's a workflow. You know, it's a little bit of a shame, but it is because we do, again, have to make changes in a couple of places. So... I'm going to not probably be able to give justice to the details. And if any of my people listen to this, they'll bang on my door and yell at me. Um, we can always make edits. <laughs> I don't understand. You know? um, but it basically, it's a workflow and it's a change to the GraphQL schema has to be made. A change to our backend schema has to be made as well. That's, you know, the Kafka messages or providing the Kafka messages and so on. See, I can't remember now if we're using protobuf. I think it's protobuf <laughs> for our, like, you know, uh, message passing. Message passing, yeah. So, so that has to be changed, and then that's pretty much it. And then, the, you know, if there's a major change on our resolver, it has to be written for the GraphQL server, and that's what we're tinkering with. Is opening that piece up to have more people on the product teams able to make the GraphQL schema change and write the, and change the resolvers as necessary. But there's still kind of a workflow step to have make changes to the to the protobuf schema. 
And so then there's, and then there's if it touches Scoop in the back of CMS, then the whole I mean, potentially the UI has to change as well. Like if there's significant field has to be added, or sometimes a more significant change. So that's yeah. that's another piece of the workflow if that's necessary. And then Apollo, how does that play into this? So Apollo, I don't even like. I haven't spent a lot of time studying Apollo. Mine, I don't really know exactly what Apollo is. I guess it's a implementation of React, or it's like into like what that means exactly. I'm not totally sure. But we started with like React normal, and at some point we switched to Apollo on the front end. So that's you know we have a good blog post about it, which I like skimmed, and <laughs> which forgot. we will absolutely <laughs> link to. Yeah. Um, okay. So I yeah I don't I'm not deep on that particular. Spot. Okay, another ARB matter. It sounds like and the, and the front you know I say, like in every case like actually like the front end like the smart people on the front end teams like made that call and they yeah. ran it through the ARB and it, and we you know got modified in certain ways. Like that's the way that it goes. ARB doesn't typically come up with the plans; they just right. like critique them basically. And okay. then in in terms of GraphQL, do you foresee a future at all where? Maybe there would be some components that are more GraphQL dependent, and there's still some leftover REST APIs. Or yeah, I, do, I definitely do. I mean, my view is, I mean, the whole the point of doing GraphQL is to handle the problems like hydration and filtering, and you know, for a, a complex content schema that's going to have a lot of references. You know, to make it easy to write queries to get just the pieces that you need. Right. And that's not necessary for everything. Right. So I think absolutely we do today and we'll always have like more straightforward REST APIs for things that aren't really integrated into that schema. Right. Cool. So lessons learned with, I guess, the React shift. Are there any sort of anything you would caution against or things that you wish you had known going into sort of that migration path about just how you architected your front end and how you went about implementing? I'll say not yet. My fear with front end frameworks is always over engineering. So might we right. decide at some point that actually React was like too heavyweight for what we really needed to do and that we should have used Vue, which hadn't really quite emerged yet or whatever, you know, like is there a lighter weight framework that's gonna come along that we'll like buy with Envy? Perhaps. I kind of feel like it's never a perfect world, and like that was a good case of like making a decision that was like a solid consensus decision. You know, with a lot of support and everything, like wasn't a bad call. Never will become a bad call at the time. Right. Um, but I worry about over engineering front end frameworks, and I kind of feel like no matter what you do, front end development's always a pain, and it's kind of the same ways, and that there's no magic bullet anyway. So. Yeah, because I mean, obviously, you folks could hear this and say, well, the majority of the pages are static, so maybe there isn't a huge need for it. But if you take into account this whole idea of like enhancing the experience by showing you things that you may be interested in, right, then you understand it's like, okay, now that these dynamic components are coming in. Makes yeah, and like sense. maybe we'll look back and say, you know, we didn't build as much sort of dynamic stuff as we thought we would, so mm -hmm. we didn't really need this frame. You know, like the other, like, it's hard to say. In okay, but that's you know, we'll see. Okay, so let's talk about serverless. You, I have a quote here. Um, <laughs> my goal is all new apps are serverless by 2019. Yeah, my team was really mad at me because I hadn't. I like started saying that. In interviews before I told anybody on the team. <laughs> oh, you didn't put it through ARB. Okay. I just kind of threw yeah. it out there and they were super pissed. But it's a loose goal. It's not 
you know, we just done a lot of migration and I'm not going to turn around and say, everyone, let's do it again. You know? But what I am saying is like, I present it more as like a theoretical argument. I think like, you know, I, I have a whole bunch of reasons for believing that serverless is a big deal. Tell me whether I'm wrong. If not, then like, why wouldn't we, you know, want to be starting all our new projects on serverless if we have the option to do that? So, so before you dive into that, can you just, for the audience, can you just define what serverless means to you? Because we were actually arguing about this earlier. Yeah, like, yeah, well, there's the framework, there's the concept. It's not the framework. I'm the definitely not talking about the framework. So yeah, I'm talking yeah, about yeah. the concept. And right. to me, what it means is any like context where you don't need to, as a developer, you don't need to think about scaling and architecting for scaling. Right. You don't need to think about availability and reliability from an architectural perspective. So you don't have to think about like availability zones or, you know, having redundancy, like that's all managed for you. And then ideally, like you also don't have, you don't interact with an OS. And that part, there are things that are close enough to serverless where there's still like a bit of a vestigial OS that I like say, okay, that's fine. <laughs> you know, but generally speaking, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be dealing with an OS. That's my definition. A lot of things okay. fit in that definition. CDNs fit in that definition. So to me, like mm. serverless for me started in 1999 with Akamai and like, and it really like we, you know, displaced a whole bunch of our server infrastructure when I first implemented it and one should. So but, and any kind of managed service like Cloud Spanner or BigQuery also fits the criteria. Then obviously platform as a service fits the criteria like Google App Engine or Heroku. Yeah, I was just thinking, okay, Heroku, but enabling with Auto scaling enabled. Yeah, yeah. So I never was a Heroku thing. user as a developer, so I'm not. Yeah, but I can't preach about whether it fits my criteria closely or not yeah. so much. But Google App Engine does. The function as a service stuff fits, but I find people reduce serverless to function as a service a lot lately. They're like, oh, That's Lambda. Cool. And I'm like, no, Okay, so you're not cool. saying that yeah. tw by 2019, everything should be on cloud functions. I think almost nothing will be on cloud functions. I think cloud functions are a useful tool, but by no means like a way to build meaningful applications. Oh, okay. Now, I'm so happy to be persuaded otherwise by someone, but I just don't see that as being a good way to build apps. At least, unless there were lots of lots of evolution and lots of tooling, and they basically came to look like something quite different. So, when you say serverless by 2019, you're saying that there's going to be you're you're not saying that it's going to be a particular product or a particular service. You're simply saying there's going to be another layer of abstraction where we're not even talking about OS. Uh, we're not. Yeah, like about I, I, what I'm saying is like if there's a well, actually the first thing I would say is like if there's a good SaaS solution out there, like use that. If there isn't, right. if there's a good managed service out there, which is almost the same thing, like use that. If there isn't, but you can host your app on a serverless platform that meets those criteria, use that. And then if not, then do something instance-based or probably container-based. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So you're, you're saying and, more and than that Maybe there's some cloud function stuff scattered in there to do specific things. Okay, so you're saying conceptually, yeah. you're going to worry less and less about ops. Sounds like, yeah. and more of what you do is going to be at the application. Yeah, the, the goal, the, the benefits are first and foremost, there's a whole bunch of things we don't have to do, and that's like think about scaling, architect for scaling, do the ops behind scaling, etc. Number two, it ought to be more cost effective in the long run. 
and that's not always true. It's not even it's not always even easy to tell today whether one approach is more cost effective than another. There's also a lot of very you can do serverless badly, you can do instance based yeah. architectures badly, and that's going to have a lot more impact on your cost than one of the you know. Yeah. But theoretically, I just feel like who's going to do a better job of utilizing the underlying resources, like us or Amazon and Google? And the answer is Amazon and Google will. So over time they ought to be able to run much more efficiently and they ought to pass the savings on to us, which I believe they will because there's a strong competitive dynamic. So that's the economic argument. The third argument, which is the least proven, is that it also ought to boost developer productivity and hopefully happiness because it's just more constrained. Like you spend less time making lots of stack choices. You make a few and then the rest is like, you kind of got to live with it. Um, So you just have, you're more constrained so you ought to be able to, it, it, as long as you can work within those constraints, you ought to be able to do you know, focus more on like building your features, basically. So for a new product that you're looking to launch, right, are you now encouraging folks internally to say, all right, try out Google Cloud Functions as a first step? I, I would or? say my advice, which everyone's free to ignore, is App Engine. I'd say look at App Engine first. I'm not, again, App I'm, Engine. Not, I'm not keen on function as a service. I think that's like actually... I've quoted Deepak Singh, who's the product manager for the uh, Elastic Container Service at AWS, where he said something like Lambda or Cloud Functions in general were like Perl, like what Perl was back mm-hmm. in the day. Like it's a great way to like solve a particular problem or like glue stuff together, but again, like not the way to build big apps. So I say Google App Engine, but what I think is happening is that the container services are moving towards being more and more fully managed. So a fully, yeah, like a fully managed GKE, you know, where we don't have to define the cluster or like manually add nodes or even like auto scale it, but it just works, would be again, close enough. So there's still some OS in there, but if it's super stripped down, it's like, okay, fine. And like, and if someone else is patching it, then like, I don't even, at that point, I don't really care. The OS almost just becomes like a construct for managing dependencies and like, that's probably fine. Right, so App Engine or Container Engine, you're good with either one because they give a sufficient level of To be clear, like, like Container Engine, not today, but where mm. I think they're going, like, I, I don't quote me on, well, <laughs> today, I, this is not based on, on, what I mean is like, this is not based on knowledge of, say, Google's roadmap, but it's a hypothesis that GKE and sort of App Engine Flex will converge to some degree. Right. And you'll have something that, presents an interface, a container-based interface like GKE, but it's otherwise managed. Yeah. So that's where, when we get there, that'll like meet my criteria, but, it does, but GKE doesn't today. That said, we run tons of stuff on GKE. Like that's our dominant way of doing things right now. Gotcha. Okay. So maybe we can talk a little bit about your shift. I mean, there's a whole set of blog posts about this, but maybe you could just touch on your shift to Google Cloud Engine, right? Because you had your own data centers, mm-hmm. you had some stuff on AWS. What did that decision look like? So it was a long decision. And in the end, it's one that we've taken with eyes open and that we've reserved the right to modify at any time. And to be clear, we continue to do a lot of stuff with AWS. But by default, the content of the decision was for our consumer-facing products, we're going to use GCP first. And if if there's some reason why we don't think that's going to work out great, then we'll happily use AWS. In practice, that hasn't really happened. Like We've been able to meet almost 100% of our needs in GCP. App Engine. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, no, not necessarily App Engine, but GCP in general. So I guess it's mostly GKE. Like we're mostly running stuff on Kubernetes right now. Oh wow! Um, okay. Yeah. But we we haven't really run into things where like we can't do something in GCP, so we go to AWS. We have a lot of historical stuff running in AWS that we've not prioritized moving. We prioritize getting out of our data centers, and we're happy leaving stuff in AWS. The other thing is we don't like to run Oracle in GCP because we're basically not, it's not supposed to, and you can't actually be licensed and supported. Mm, um, okay. So we continue to run the Oracle that we have, which I'm ashamed to say we still have some Oracle. Um, that's all running in AWS. <laughs> okay. Are you um, are you lobbying Google to support that, or are you just trying um, to kill it off? I'd rather get rid of it. You know, I think okay, my, right. my goal is to get rid of Oracle. Um, I don't mind saying so either. But, but so, like, the first thing we did with GCP was the data stuff. So we looked hard at PubSub and BigQuery, and we loved BigQuery. So we said, let's go all in on the data stuff, and that's worked out fantastically. So that built our confidence in our core theory, which is that in many cases, Google is going to prove to be a better engineering company than Amazon, mm-hmm. and that they're going to produce, it's going to take them longer but they're going to produce like better solutions and more integrated solutions than Amazon will, who mm, famously and by strategic choice has said, we're going to do a million things at once and half of them are going to be redundant and you're going to have to figure it out. But that's how we're going to move quickly. So it's interesting. You know, I'm like with full, I say this with full respect for Amazon, what they've done. I mean, they've invented the whole space, but we think that we're willing to change the way we do things to accommodate to a cloud so, you know, we'll do that to accommodate to a cloud that's like better engineered and ultimate, you know, it's going to be superior in, in specific technical respects. And we think that's what we're getting with Google. And so far, that theory has been borne out. Yeah. And this is a common thing that at least we've started to see on the Stackshare side is that people will now look at Google Cloud and they'll say, oh, you know, this whole BigQuery thing is really interesting. And so yeah. it starts off with a piece mm-hmm. and a lot of times it's BigQuery, and then it's it's like, oh, what else? What else you got? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think right. sometimes it's Firebase. You know, people yeah, are pretty Firebase. fond of Firebase. Yeah. I think it will be Spanner in the future. I think some yes. people will be like, I want Spanner, so I'm going to go there. But are you, yeah, are but you we, using Spanner? We're not yet. We've just done our first kind of like test, and we will be basically. You could see just moving fully to Spanner. I don't know. I mean, the, the, only, the part that we don't really have our heads around is what the cost implication is. So we don't mm-hmm. really have a feel for what it costs. But everything else about it, we, we like what we see. So. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll use it and then we'll get to understand the cost dynamics better and then we'll see where it goes. And James, I know you guys obviously did a big migration to Google Cloud. Was it a lot of similar things? I mean, you, you cited I.O., right, as the big, yeah. the big thing for you all. Yeah, I mean, uh, speaking very opinionated, when we took a migration, like just straight up, turn this database on right here, turn this database on right there, give them the same data set, run them the same queries, who's going to beat out who? And we did that with the exact same resources. And I think early 2017, it was Google who would beat them out, just based on a, a pure IO, who's going to give me more megabytes faster? And we made that migration. We are very much in a still instance space. There's not a lot of challenge in that, and we know how to do that, and we do that very well. But there's something to be said about a marketing page that has a very accurate and exact number, mm-hmm. saying, yeah. if you're giving us this many dollars, you get these many bytes. And being able to run that yourself, being able to talk to an account rep from Google, and them saying, yeah, 
it is accurate and it should be. And then trying the other thing in, in Amazon and uh, again, very opinionatedly getting a few dips, getting a few spikes, it does not instill confidence, which is why we made the migration. And until you know, Amazon gives me something different, I'm not going to turn my head. So lessons learned with Google Cloud. Are there things that you wish you had known going into the GCP? I mean, you basically rip, you're shutting down all your data centers, moving over to Google Cloud. There's got to be some things in there that you were like, ah, oh, geez, there's some things here that I would have loved to know up front. I think we, done there are, but it's really down in the details. And we, okay. I think we knew when we were getting into a product early and we, you know, we expected that there would be issues and there were issues in some cases. And we also, we probably underappreciated how different the networking paradigm is and how much we'd have to change what we thought about security and that I think we were just a little sort of unprepared for and a little naive about, like we should have known. But the, a lot of the documentation has not been great. So like that all to me comes with a business that's evolving very rapidly and that's trying to catch up and is, is behind. I mean, they're behind AWS in many respects. So that was a gamble that we made. So a lot of details we didn't know, but overall I think we knew what we were getting into and, and, and I think we've been pretty, you know, we've been happy it's worked out. None of the issues have like been severe. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so when coming back to that sort of example, when you're hitting the homepage, that's all container engine. Yeah. Gotcha. Was there any uh, organizational hurdles in the transition from have, used to having your own data centers to now migrating all of that? Mm, to- oh yeah, yeah. No, that was big and continues to be, but it was quite disruptive. And in the process, like the shape and the sort of character of our ops team has changed significantly. Right. That's a big topic maybe for another day, but yeah. like, yes, it's definitely changed the way that we do ops and think about ops, the kinds of skills we need and, and, and more. Part two. Yeah. <laughs> like a, I, have a, I have a very quick sentence to put on that. The way that my team is shaped, even though we're much smaller in scale, is that you spend less time operating and you spend more time engineering. Yep. Now, there are two words in the same title, mm-hmm. but if you're constructing more architecture, it's much easier than, oh, wow, this disk is failing. Let me put in a request to replace it. It's just more productive work. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Stackshare being a developer community, one question here is about just how you all view your developer community. We've got developers that nytimes.com, which houses your open source, houses your eng blog, and really puts, and APIs, of course. How do you guys look at sort of building your developer community? And maybe if we have time here, like, how do you view open source? And is that also the review board? How does that happen? Well, so I'll say first, like, we have some APIs out there. We haven't been paying much attention to them. I don't. We don't feel like we have a developer community around our APIs at this point. Mm-hmm. I'd like us to if it's something that the world wants. At some point, we'll get around to like figuring out if it is something that the world wants, but we're not going to do it. I think we first did it sort of out of vanity. It was like a thing everybody was doing, and we won't do that again. But if, if there's a real value for yeah. people who are doing things out there, that then we would do it. So for, but for open source, like I say, our filter is the same. Like I'm theoretically and philosophically willing to open source just about anything. I don't view anything that we do as like super proprietary. I don't view us really, I care, I'd be more willing to, more interested in giving back to the community than like protecting some competitive advantage around the tech that we do. Okay. So that said, 
I don't want us to just open source junk or everything or things we're not going to maintain. So the yeah. filter is like, is this going to be useful to somebody? And are we, do we believe in it in the long run? If so, we'll open source it without hesitation. And that is, you know, that's just about like, if we've done something that we benefit enormously from open source. If we do something that we think others can benefit from, we want to share it. That's gotcha. the blog's been fun. I mean, part of the being at, at the times, there's a lot of developers who care or interested in journalism and like to write. So it's, for me, it's like just giving, well, to me, to some degree, yeah. Um, it's like giving everyone an outlet to like express themselves a little bit and have some fun with it. And if hopefully people find it interesting, that's what that's all about. Awesome. All right. Well, we're definitely over time here, but this has been awesome. Thank Great. you so much. Thank yeah. you. Thank fun. you.